You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. It is always nice to have your company. My name's David Frizzell. I'll be your host. And in this episode, we're joined by Dr. Matthew Donald, who is an expert in leading and managing change in this crazy age of disruption and artificial intelligence. We have a wide-ranging chat about the future and everything that might come our way, and importantly, how we as leaders can position ourselves strongly. But of course, I begin with the obvious question. A PhD in managing the future? How did he get into that? I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Matthew Donald. Dr. Matthew Donald, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Good afternoon. Matt, it's really nice to have you on board. And I said I was going to hit you with a question without notice at the very beginning. Tell us about the fact that you've done your PhD in all of this. You and I are going to talk about artificial intelligence, the way it's disrupting our lives, organizations, leadership, management, all that kind of stuff. You have chosen to throw yourself into this so deeply that you are now Dr. Matthew Donald. Tell us about doing a PhD in this stuff. How did you land on that? Look, I, um, I finished my master's and I had you know, got reasonable marks and I've, I came across um, as part of my master's writing um, a change plan for an old factory. And um, I really wanted to understand more about what would be the best way to uh, make change in an organization particularly an old one that had uh, resistance to change issues. And um, yeah, just thought, well, rather than just leaving it off with my master's, I really wanted to know more about it because I guess I've been involved in organizational change since the early 80s. And, you know, wow. I just wanted to wanted to know more about it. But certainly a PhD is quite different to any other learning that you do at a university. There's um, a lot of it's, well, most of it's your own, own doing. And um you know, it doesn't yeah. have that prescription that a normal coursework type um, learning has. Um, but you have to really enjoy the topic because I don't think you, in my case, Mind I did it part time. And, you know, it took me yeah. uh, six and a half years. It's not something that you're going to do lightly. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you've got to go in boots and all. So you did your master's and then you did your PhD. How, how long are we talking? What's the duration over which you did those to those two higher degrees? Uh, that'd be nearly nine years between the two of them. And, uh, wow. um, Excellent. And how long ago did you finish your PhD? Uh, in the year before last, so 19, uh, sorry, 2017. And does it do for you what you imagined it would career-wise, getting your PhD? Is it a real kind of a, a jets in your boots? I don't know that, in particularly in the business world, I don't know that it's that valued. I think they know that you... Um, have um, knowledge in a particular area, but I don't necessarily yeah. think it's that valued in business. Um, so for me, it's right. I don't know. I I just think that um, they sort of frown upon um, or treat you more as if you're an academic. Whereas in my case, I've got yeah thirty years of business experience, and I'm really trying to you know feel and understand more about the topic. So it hasn't necessarily career-wise done me that much, but it has enabled me to. You know, to teach and write on the topic, and you know, start a, a business that um, is more into consulting and that side of things. But 
in a straight workplace sense, no, it's not that not necessarily that valued in business. It's not a shot in the arm. And did you know that going into it? Were you wide, eyes wide open about that? Somewhat, I guess. Yeah, I've certainly been, you know, because I've been in business a long time. You know, there's lots of jokes and uh, you know people downplaying um, people who um, you know, have academic qualifications, particularly at the PhD level. And uh, so, no, no surprise really. But for me, it was really about well, I've been involved in so much organisational change that I wouldn't say too much of it was fabulously successful. I wouldn't say a lot of it was um, ideal. And so, for for me, it was really about saying, well, okay, how do I can how can I contribute in the future by um, you know helping organisation change better? Well, let's not forget that that thing that you just said then that not much organisational change is done well. As we go through our conversation, let's remember to get back to that. We're going to speak quite specifically about artificial intelligence and the way that's going to change the landscape, but I want you to kind of weave that into it because it fascinates me. Every organisation is doing change. Every organisation has change teams, change managers, strategic advisors in change, all of those kind of things. So it intrigues me why we do it so badly. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that as we go through. Hey, one more question on the academic stuff. It intrigues me. You said when you were doing your master's, you wrote your a paper on a change management plan at an old factory. Now, what are the rules on that? Can you do that as a paid consultant and have it contribute to your master's? Or are there some kind of ethical rules around that? No, you... you- like there are certainly for any PhD student, um, there's a whole lot of ethical um, hurdles that you need to jump over to um, to be able to write any um, any paper. And so in my case, I was employed by a business that you know was a hundred year old business. So um, I know I sought their permission to you know to write that paper. But as part of your PhD, you know when you're interviewing people or you're you know doing surveys, you've got to jump through all the hurdles regarding um, you know, making sure you don't harm people or reveal um, private information to the public. So in your actual final um, yeah. thesis, you're only revealing study findings as opposed to specific, you know, organisations. None of those are named in my paper or anything like that. All right, fabulous. Very interesting, as I say. But let's get to the real topic now: AI, the way it's going to disrupt us, how it's going to disrupt us, and most importantly. We're going to finish with what we need to know as managers and leaders through this age of disruption that is going to arm us and ensure we don't get gobbled up and left behind. Let's start with the obvious one, Matt. Can you help us understand exactly what we mean when we hear the term AI? What is artificial intelligence? Look, artificial intelligence is effectively, rather than using, say, like computers and and machine-type tools that pretty much just follow um, the way programmers program them. Artificial intelligence is moving more towards the human ability to um, create and understand. And it's not just about mimicking, which is what um, you generally would see in um, factories and um, even space programs. There's still a human driving it, whereas artificial intelligence, yes, its base is still from a program, but the program is able over time to... uh, to learn itself and make its own insights and discoveries. So it's uh, it's quite different to the computers. You know, we, we kind of see a little bit in social media. You know, you can see on your um, social media, you know, you can see you've been on 
some website somewhere and all of a sudden you start getting a feed that, that just knows that you're interested in New Zealand or whatever. You're interested in buying trampolines. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. So that's the artificial intelligence. Nobody's actually telling the computer to know that. It's just looking at your profile, yeah. But it's far more than social now, media. Now, can you – are you able – before we move on, sorry, mate, but yeah. before we move on, are you able to clarify any myth that exists about how much our phones are listening to us? Now, I'm assuming that no one from Google or any other big tech company is sitting there with a headpiece on listening to every word I say, but is there some kind of artificial intelligence that is picking up key words as we're just getting about our day-to-day life not necessarily speaking on our phone, is that happening or is that in the realm of conspiracy theories? Uh, look, I, I think that's probably still in the conspiracy theory, but certainly there are ethical issues to be um, considered in artificial intelligence. I've been writing a bit about that of recent times because in any program, it's you know it's still based on the programmer's bias and you know, way of doing things. And uh, one of the one of the really big things that I'm interested in is. Um, Making sure that you know, if we say um, human resource systems are already scanning um, applications and picking people for um, interview, my concern is that is the artificial intelligence that say sits behind that software is it really um, unbiased? And it probably can't be. And mm. and you might say, well, you know, humans have always been biased anyway. But my concern is that if we just accept AI without thinking about the bias. You know, are we naturally going to just leave people out because they, they live in the wrong suburb or they've got the wrong type of name or, you know, is there something in their CV that the artificial intelligence just says, well, rationally, I'm just going to ignore that? Reject. Yeah. And so there is a real concern in my mind that, and there's certainly, I think the EU's um, got a, an action party just looking at that is to say, well, how will we assess the AI before we go and adopt it? And so you actually answered my next question before I even asked it. I was going to ask about the ethics of it. So if AI is this intelligence that is machine learning of itself, it's beyond that thing that a, a, a man or a woman did after the Industrial Revolution using a machine, AI actually learns itself. And you gave the example of social media. That's an ethical dilemma that you just described about, say, scanning through CVs. Are there any other things going on right now that you see with your highly trained eye that you think one day we'll look back on and consider, gee, that was really in the infancy of us using AI and now we look back on it, that's highly unethical? What do you see that fits into that category? Look, I I think, again, there's some research going on um, somewhere in the world, something I can't recall exactly where, but even just um, as we move, artificial intelligence naturally leads into robotics and you know the robot type thing but there's some research going on even just looking at you know should robots be a white color or a black color or, or should they be something else because again yeah. there's that Yellow sort of blue. yeah that's right there's all these other options available but again if you look at the classical um, movies you know you can see white right. white versus black good versus evil or you could mm. say it's um, yeah. a racial overtone so these are these are certainly yeah. things that are that are out there that I don't think that you know those who are considering of adopting these things are actually considering. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. 
Hey, Matt, another question without notice. My six-year-old boy and I are continually fantasizing about the day we get some kind of domestic robot in our house that does everything for us, and all we have to do is hang out and have fun and do what we enjoy. How far away are we from having some kind of domestic robot? Look, I think it's certainly within the next five to ten years, maybe a little bit earlier, because brilliant. with um, oh, with 5G brilliant. coming along, the robot is actually going to know pretty precisely where it is in in its sense, and it'll have very quick communications. So the idea of um, you know, just leaving a list to your robot to you know clean this, do that before you come home, oh, um, all this is, is quite possible. I think the limiting factor is the um, you know, before they really get widely ad- adopted, I think it's really related to how safe are they, and are they able to do the things that they're meant to do. But once they can, once they've got proven capabilities, and people uh, think they're safe, and it's a bit like the you know the mobile phone, the iPhone transition. As soon as the thing is capable of doing things that we want it to do, I think it'll be adopted fairly quickly. And not just in the household, oh, but no in doubt. So you're... <laughs> Yeah, I think... It, oh, it's, mate, and I, I don't care about the money-making potential. I know people hear that and they think about the money-making. I'm thinking about the convenience of having it at home. So you're serious. In You think within five years we could have that, literally a, a thing that exists in our house, hangs out in our house, that we can leave a list for. And I could and, and presumably of course it would be connected. I could be at work, think of something and send it a message. Yeah, I think so. Look, they're not gonna the first like once upon a time we might have thought these would just appear overnight, but I think they'll be more in yeah. there'll be a transition. There'll be like models that'll get upgraded and, and this is where the the, yeah. the the work will come from is the upgrades and what have you. But you know, the the initial ones, you like you you can see the um the idea of driverless cars and drones are all happening, and the technology is really moving ahead quite fast. You know, the idea of uh, certainly um, a drone or a robot, you know, cleaning a carpet and um, you know, doing some very basic tasks is, is not that far away. Oh, that's super exciting. I know how these things are. I've, I've spoken about it before on the podcast. You know, the idea you could you could paint any picture you like about how we live today. You know, the idea that. You and I can catch a plane by checking in on our phone on the way to the airport. We can get be be unboarding or whatever it's called, disembarking the plane. I can order an Uber as I'm walking out of the plane, and the Uber's there waiting for me at the at the airport. All of those things you can you know you can check into a hotel without speaking to anyone. You can walk up with your key and and swipe into your hotel room. All of those things that we can do from day to day. I can order a pizza and and it'll arrive and it'll even tell me when it's nearby. They're super cool, but they kind of creep up on us, don't they? That that day that we could paint, if we painted a really high tech using all of our devices for ourselves right now, if I had have told you that in 1985, you'd be blown away. But each of those things kind of happens incrementally to the point where we look around and go, wow, it's actually pretty amazing, isn't it? And I guess even things like that domestic robot that I long for will happen incrementally. There won't be any just one day where all of a sudden these amazing things are available for everyone to use and they they fulfill all your domestic dreams. It happens slowly. And I guess there are things right now in our homes that do that. Some people have those robotic vacuum cleaners. I, I guess that's a, a very small step in that direction. Is Am, am I right about that, that incremental change? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's Something that, you know, the people that are worried about, you know, work disappearing or, you know, things changing rapidly, what they're missing is that uh, it is an evolutionary path. Now, the path is getting faster. Yeah. 
But, you know, like you said, 10 years ago, or certainly 20 years ago, you know, the idea of just having the internet was, was a fantastic thought. Yeah. And mind blowing. And now, you know, how many people would say, well, I couldn't survive without it? So it's, it grows on us, but I do think it's related to the functionality. So the, you know, the developers of the new technology, on one hand, they need to be, um, you know, thinking, thinking uh, creatively in the future and trying to develop things that we might want. But until they actually are things that we want, they won't necessarily proliferate um, as quick, quickly as they could. So again, you know, we took on mobile phones and they were great. They were even great for text for a while, but it really wasn't until you got the full um, computer functionality and particularly the cam- ca- mm. camera in your iPhone, then then it really went away, you know. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, actually. That you're going to get. That's my next question, where we talk about technology as the enabler, not as the cause. But before we get there, I just want to ask you two more questions. Firstly, what about you personally, Matt? Are you an earlier adopter of these things? So let's say the robot turns up that's going to do all the chores at home. Are you lining up to buy the first one, or are you a kind of stand back and see how it goes kind of guy? Look, I'm pretty, I pretty much like tech. I wouldn't necessarily be the first adopter on those things. But I'd certainly be in yeah. the, in the first first group, you might say. Um, I'd like to um, yeah. like to be on top of things. So, in my computer experience in my age group, I guess you know we took on the first Commodore sixty fours back in the early eighties, and technologies just something that changing technology is just something I see as part of um, part of my life. So I'm not necessarily afraid of it. Certainly wouldn't want to be the last in something, but being first is often expensive and a bit clunky um so um you know being just behind that front front light is probably where i would would be that's a really interesting point i i feel as though and i think i might have even said it at different points on this podcast i feel like i've changed with that i certainly wasn't at the front of the queue buying the first iphone I i was a couple of years into it and i was doing that classic look around wait to see how it works out is is there a buzz about it but I kind of feel like there's there's been a change in me, and I might almost be one of those those first people lining up to get that domestic robot. <laughs> yeah, look, I think that particularly in a business sense, there's there's um, great benefits of being first, but there's also great risk, and I think that's um, and a higher cost. So that that's really the um, the issue to um, always consider with being first is um, you know, am I buying the wrong one, and why is it costing so yeah. much when the all the future versions would be half the price, yeah. Yeah, there's so many examples of that. I mean, think about, I don't know how old you are, Matt. I think you might be slightly younger than me, but I remember the first computer my parents bought me when I was in grade 11 at school, which is in 1991. It was more expensive than any computer you would buy today, and it did almost nothing compared to what the computers are that we buy today. And and most things are the same. You know, big screen TVs are, are famous for that. I mean, those things were five, 10 grand in the early days. And now, of course, you can pick, pick up a pretty decent, enormous TV for two grand. So yeah, that's true about being an early adopter. Look, I know I'm just talking about the exciting stuff, the stuff that floats my boat personally, but let's get to the the theory about this or the the important concepts that sit behind this. And you talk about the fact that technology never drives the change. It never causes the change. It's the enabler of change. Tell us what you mean about that. Yeah, look, change itself in the business context, you know, if you went back to the 1970s, technology was the change, you know, like we got the first computers, we got the first 
you know, calculators, all these sort of things. So they were changes in themselves. But in the last 10 to 20 years, change is happening beyond just technology. And it, what the technology do is enabling the information to be shared around. And so one new um, idea in one part of the world can be translated to another part of the world almost instantly. And so social media is a good example. You know, you can have an uprising in somewhere in the Middle East and everybody in the world knows about it and, and prices and, you know, travel arrangements, everything adjusts as a result of that. So it's like we're all yeah. interconnected. And in my book, I talk about that being really the um, the output of globalization. So globalization was all about companies trying to get efficient and trying to put things in countries where they most fitted. But what it's also done is because we've had the internet come along at the same time, globalization is now, you know, everything's just interconnected, not just in trade, but in information. And, you know, a, a president in America can announce a new um, a new tariff and instantly everybody knows about it. Whereas once by the time, you at least would have had to wait till the next day to read in the newspaper or you might have only read the newspaper on Saturdays and you know, it could be a week or two before you really caught up on that. Whereas today, it's just it's just instant. And um, it'll be the same with new technology as it rolls through. You know, it's a point that, you know, we do, at the point that we get a, a genuine driverless drone or vehicle, everybody will know about it and everybody will be trying to copy it almost instantly. So it's not like you can sit in an isolated world anymore. So... Why is that important to us? So I really like that idea. You know, in the 70s and 80s, the technology was the change and we changed our business model. You know, we even changed our lounge room to accommodate the TV when that came in in the 50s and 60s and then color in the 70s. So we've fitted our lives around this new technology that was introduced. And we didn't know we wanted TV before TV came along. I mean, we didn't know what it was. But you say that now the change is not the cause, it supports a desire. No, sorry, the technology is not the cause of change. It supports a desire that otherwise exists. And I, I like that concept. Why is it important as human beings existing in this world, as leaders of organizations, why is it important that we know that? What can we do about that with that knowledge? Look, I think that it changes some of the principles, particularly uh, for managers and leaders. So, you know, if a leader really um, believes that, should should understand that trust is important and um, communication is important. So these are long-standing uh, principles in leadership. But the way that you'll communicate and build trust in a fast-moving, interconnected world is considerably different. So, for instance, if you um, say to your staff, "Well, you know, that's the end of this change. We're not going to, you know, make any more changes for another year or two." So they, they begin to trust you, they believe what you've told them, but if from social media or just the internet or any other fast-moving change happens, you may have to go back to your staff and say, well, actually, I got that wrong. We are going to have to put people off or we are going to have to change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the basis of trust is now different because if you just if you don't explain and explain the, the health, everything's much more interconnected, and that sometimes you'll get things wrong and in a provider context, then um, staff will soon not believe leaders. And that's really a problem for leaders because their whole premise is about trying to bring people forward and you know get people to follow. And that's why trust is so important. So my view, what I'm positioning on that is that rather than 
trusting that everything you say is right. It's more about trusting that you've um, explained the environment properly and that you know um, that you won't always have it right. So you actually need to build different relationships with um, people. Um, it's a bit like a a parent when they've got a you know a five year old. They would tell the child to do this, this, and this, and the child trusts that the parents you know got some knowledge. But as they become more, <laughs> as they become into um, like teenagers, they start to question that. And if the parent starts to um, <laughs> yeah. change their mind, the the child says, "Well, hang on, you're not so trustworthy after all." So I think it's that's just one example. But you know, from a from a leadership point of view, it's important that people understand that. You know they can't always be right, and some of the change we're talking about, you know, is uncertain. It's and our traditional business models are not great at that. They really always assume that um, we'll be conservative and and knowledgeable, and I don't necessarily think that's right. Because who who today would know at what point your organisation is going to adopt um, drones or driverless cars? You know, will you be going for um, electric vehicles or um, hydrogen vehicles? Some of these changes are going to happen, but nobody really knows when and nobody really knows what direction they're going to be in. So you could go and buy a fleet of uh, electric vehicles and then find that hydrogen takes off in 18 months' time and you know all your vehicles will have to be sold for low value and, and changed over. So, so I think it's important for leaders to explain those questions to their staff. The yeah. Because our models mm. of the past always assumed that the manager knew everything, and that's pretty much the last 150 years. Managers are in control and mm. they have power. But I don't necessarily think that's the desirable model because there is so much um, unpredictability that you're really better to have closer relations with your staff, your customers and suppliers, and explain the environment and explain the issues in your decision-making rather than just, you know, we got it wrong. Because I think once you lose trust – you know, you're going to find it very hard to um, to bring people along. I like the way you put that. Rather than making promises that you don't know if you can keep or not because the environment will change, you simply explain the environment, explain the, the place in which we're operating and all the moving factors and the things that are still to be decided. And that way you can bring your staff along for the ride, as you say. Hey, I had Gihan Pereira on the show not that long ago, back in episode 121, I think, and he talked about that idea that, as you say, for 150 years, all the authority has been with the boss. And so what Gihan talked about was that we used to push information towards authority. You're the boss. I'm a worker bee. I've got all this information and wisdom and knowledge. So I'm going to tell you what I know. And you make the decision because you're the authority. Whereas Gihan says in the new world, in this new age of disruption, what we actually have to do is move authority to where the knowledge is so that we're giving the authority to make decisions to the people who are the experts, the people who know what they're talking about. And you can think of all sorts of examples of that in our society right now. You can think about it at the top level, the, the federal level, when it comes to, say, climate change, climate science. We try and push the knowledge towards those in authority and hope that they listen to the right voices rather than pushing authority to those who have the knowledge. It's a very interesting point. Now, I'm going to ask you in just a minute, Matt, to talk about how this affects us more as leaders. I know you've touched on it there, and I want you to give us your top three or five or whatever it might be of things that we as leaders who want to be successful in the future can remember from today on. But before I do that, you reminded me of something in your book. You were talking about leaders and trustworthiness, 
and it couldn't I couldn't help but think of Donald Trump, of course. Hey, you talked about Donald Trump in your book. I'm really interested to get your summary as to whether Donald Trump's behavior, and as you mentioned in his book, I mean, this guy is making policy decisions and announcements on Twitter without speaking to the relevant, whether it's state officials or even people in his own administration. And that's just how it is. That that is what it is. And we can be judgmental or not about that. But I'm really interested as to whether that is a... I don't know, uh, is it an odd one out? Is is this just a strange blip on our radar as we develop towards this disruptive society or this disrupted society? Or does Donald Trump somehow represent the new norm of political decision-making? Yeah, look, I think um, his success is around trust to his constituents. So there'd be a whole, a whole lot of people in society that would say that he's totally untrustworthy, but to his constituents, they... To my mind, his base. Yeah, his base. They voted him in to make political change. You know, they didn't. They don't like what the um, elite and the um, you know the the people that are in power do. So they want something that's different. Swamp. And he's different, and he he follows through on what he promises to some degree. And I think you know he's got a new form of trust, uh, but he's using again. He's enabling himself through the um, through Twitter to get his messages out because again he doesn't personally trust the normal media deliver the message the way he wants to deliver it. So I think that it, that so it does it himself. Yeah. So I think it's actually a message for the the normal politicians that they're losing trust by not necessarily doing what they say they do, um, and we can all understand why. You know, policy development in the traditional sense, takes years and months and a lot of negotiation and don't always end up with the optimal answer. But in the in the Trump model, he sort of does away with all that wasted time and effort and just comes up for his own way and hopes that his, um, his followers like what he does. And um, I think for the, um, the general political framework, that there's certainly a message in there for them to, to think about how how they can build trust in this disruptive world because clearly the fact that Trump has followers says there's something wrong with the um, the more mainstream. So do you, do you think we're going to see more rather than less of that Trump-like behaviour at the national leadership level? Yeah, potentially. Uh, people might have called it more um, like he's trying to please the masses, but I, I don't necessarily know that that's what he's really trying, what he's really about. It's It seems to me that People want genuine politicians, whether they're good or bad, or whether they're on the left or the right, they want people that they can trust and follow. And you can even see that with Bernie Sanders in in the US at the moment. You know, people had written him off after losing um, to Clinton, and yet he now, you know, he may not be the nom- nominee, but he's certainly a long way ahead of where people would have placed someone who's so left of center, particularly American politics. But the fact is he stands for something and people recognise that and he's getting his message across to, to young people even though he's the oldest candidate. So there's, there's stuff in there that actually says that the mainstream political parties are, are probably a bit like the manager. They're, they're still interested in power and control rather than actually trying to connect with the, with the people. That's a very interesting take, Matt. All right. Let's get to the end. Let's cut to the chase here. Tell us what all of this adds up to for those of us who are looking to 
lead within organizations over over the next period of time, whether it's 10, 20, 30 years, what are the things that the principles, because you're obviously not going to tell us the date that all of these big technologies are going to hit because we don't know those yet. What are the principles that I can embrace and take forward with me to ensure that I, I not just survive, but I thrive in this age of disruption and not get left behind? Yeah, look, if you say that, if you take the view that uh, managers don't know everything and maybe they never did, but certainly the old principles were the manager was in control and knew everything. If you say, well, everything's happening too fast, there's too many things happening all at the same time. Therefore, the manager position is no longer that authoritarian, powerful position. So for them to be successful, and I use manager and leadership in sort of the same sentence here, but they really need their um, their staff and the people around them to be the people that are creative, that have the great ideas or they can identify the threat that's just come in over social media or they can see the um, the new robot that's been developed on the other side of the world and they say, ah, oh, I can use that. So you need to have a different form of business that is, and maybe our IT companies are a little bit closer to this model, but still a little bit away from what I'm proposing. So therefore, you need creativity and you need innovation. And the way to get that is going to be um, inclusiveness and making sure that you've got um, really close relations with your staff, that you're not just giving them the next task to do every day, that you're actually asking for their input. And when you're about to make those big decisions, rather than you know the classical make decision, go and communicate it, you actually get them involved before you make it. And uh, for a lot of managers, that's going to be quite confronting because you know they've grown up over the last 30, 40 years or longer thinking that they had to be in control and they have to know everything, whereas the uh, the pace and change is going to be so quick and dynamic that they're just going to have to have a different type of team around them. And the way to do that is to build those close relations and, you know, and be trustworthy and be inclusive. So, you know, the person who, you know, might be the least important person in the hierarchy might have the greatest idea and, and the, the manager of the future will be looking for that idea, but not just taking any idea. That I, I still believe there's a a lack of um, critical thinking in business uh, and that's probably emanates from the the managers who think they know everything or need to know everything. They don't necessarily look for the other options whereas um, critical thinking combined with creativity and inclusion is kind of where business needs to be um, needs to be heading. So that one's all about it's the end or the death of the all-knowing, all-powerful leader and and the age of true collaboration and that everyone in the organization, anyone in the team could have the next big idea because we expect everyone to be thinking and creative and alert to the new opportunities that are on the horizons. I, I like that, Matt. That's a, a really powerful one. We've heard that a number of times before on the podcast. It's great to have that reinforced because as, as, as silly as it sounds in this nice sterile conversation that we're having you know, outside of an organization – those all-powerful, all-knowing, hierarchical decision-making organizations still are very much alive. And in fact, you might say that they're still the majority. Oh, definitely. I think there's, you know, I've meet up with a, a number of senior managers and they're still in that paradigm that I'm, I'm accountable, I'm the boss, I get the status that comes with the job and yeah. um, I've got to make yeah. all the decisions. 
And a lot of the time that's stifling, you know, good ideas and development of new people and they're just missing stuff. And particularly the critical thinking just is lacking in um, in business, in my experience anyway, that, you know, we don't look for those those other options and, you know, and, and even for new ideas that I do see in business, quite often people just forget to ask, well, what happens if I do nothing? You know, like just the really basic questions because they get on these uh, political agendas of, of we've got to go in this path and they push, push, push to go in that direction rather than just arguing based on logic and options and, and numbers and just having a good idea. People tend to want to be seen to being um, all knowledgeable and prescribing the best way forward. So I think that it's a it's a hard one for no go on no no it's, it's yeah, I just think it's one of those things that are just got to change but I don't see too many managers adopting that or being aware of it and that's you know one of the main motivators for me to write the book was really um you know my PhD it said that um you know change is a multi faceted thing so you know you read lots of books and lots of articles that say on oh, here's the three or four things that will make your change better. But my research shows that it's uh, much more interrelated, that you need need to have a multi-pronged attack for changing an organisation. And I don't know that we've got sufficient managers and leaders yet that are thinking that way. It's such a hard thing for managers to let go of that power model because it's what they've seen, it's what they grew up in, it's, it's what is built into the fabric of most organisations but if you're able to have the courage and the humility to let go of that power and truly tap into the intelligence that's around you, not only do you get a better outcome, it reinforces your status as a leader and a new age leader at that, a leader for the future. It also invigorates the people who are around you. They want to be part of that team. They want to be part of what's going on in an organization like that. But it's a tough one. It's a, it's a tough mold to break but uh, well worth the effort. All right, Matt, we've got time for one more. Do you have another piece of advice for leaders into the future that we can start thinking about now to make sure we don't get left behind? Look, I, um, I'm doing a bit of extra research at the moment, but I really think the, um, the structure and the processes within an organisation need to be seriously looked at. Again, they're all based on that power control model, but they're actually inhibiting organisations from um, – making these changes. So the one hand, there's relationship changes, but there are structural issues in um, organizations, which naturally they've, um, you know, they've come about because of that process and control. And even our governance is probably too slow. You know, the governance, by the time you've had an audit and, you know, all your, you know, processes have been looked at, it's so far after the event that any really good inputs only happen like sometime into the future. Whereas um, when changes happen, everyone's forgotten about the problem. Yeah, the change today is so much faster, so much uh, more dynamic that um, I'm even proposing that governance needs to sit up the front with the customers and the staff. So it's a very collaborative in a in a much um, broader sense. So that if you're going to make a bad mistake, you know auditors and governance boards there then to tell you that before you make the mistake rather than telling you um, 18 months from now. That's a good piece of advice. Look, Dr. Matt Donald, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru podcast. Oh, thanks, David.
And that was Dr. Matthew Donald, PhD in leading and managing change in the age of disruption and artificial intelligence. Super cool title. And I loved our chat. I hope you did too. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Dr. Matt on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.